Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's episode is a little different from what you're used to. I had the opportunity to host a panel during Art Basel for Securitize, which is the leading compliance platform for security tokens or digital securities on the blockchain. The panel was entitled Expanding Access to High Quality Assets Like Art and Private Equity. And we had a diversity of opinions in this space, including Carlos Domingo, the CEO of Securitize, Blythe Masters, founding partner of Motive Partners, Brett Redfern, founder of Panorama Financial Markets Advisory, who was formerly with the SEC, and Elizabeth von Habsburg, managing partner of Winston Art Group. In the conversation, we talked about democratizing access to high quality assets, like real world assets on the blockchain. We also talked about the FTX collapse and some of the thoughts there and what that means for the bigger picture for the space. And we got some predictions from these folks on what they are looking toward in the future. I really enjoyed this panel and I think you will too. My name is Carlos Domingo. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Securitize. Uh, first thing I want to say is thanks for, for coming. I know it's a busy week with a lot of options for attending events, so, so I'm grateful and honored that you guys decided to come here in spite of the traffic and everything. We did a similar event two years ago, it was very successful. Thanks for Sergio and the team at the Wind with Paddle for helping us organizing it. Um, and we did kind of like the same format, you know, informal, you know, some good food and drinks and uh, networking, but a little bit of content in between, and as time worked out very well. Different panelists, so we'll see this today. I'm probably better than before. so. Um, with this, I just want to say, you know, Julia, uh, thanks for moderating. I'll leave it to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carlos. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Julia LaRoche. I host a podcast here in Miami, and I'm really excited to host this panel tonight, which will air as a podcast. And we have uh, with us tonight, we have Blythe Masters, founding partner of Motive Partners, Brett Redfern, uh, for founder of Panorama Financial Markets Advisory, formerly with the SEC and Elizabeth von Habsburg, Managing Director of Winston Art Group, and of course, Carlos Domingo. And we're talking about democratizing access to digital markets. So it would be nice to just do a quick intro for you all. You know, what brings you here and your different perspective uh, to this space? So let's start with you, uh, Blythe. Well, I, I came to this space in 2015, having just left uh, JP Morgan, where I was for more decades than I'm going to admit to in public. Um, and I had developed a point of view that uh, there was some stuff going on in the fintech space that was somewhere on the spectrum between scary and very exciting, uh, and that was definitely underappreciated by the industry that I had spent the prior two plus decades uh, in. And uh, that led to Digital Asset, which was a very early mover in the enterprise blockchain space, uh, on the belief that uh, blockchain had applications that went well beyond cryptocurrency and, and um, still do believe that to this day. Uh, nowadays, I'm an investor, uh, and Digital Asset is the company who's replacing Australia's uh, infrastructure for clearing and settlement with blockchain-based technology. So, there you have it. Of course. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. And, and Carlos, thank you uh, very much for having us all here tonight. So I'm Brad Redfern. I, too, worked at J.P. Morgan for uh, 14 years. Less time a than little, me. A little, a little bit less time, but you know, didn't get quite as far as you did, Blake, either. Um, after being at the SEC for a while, I um, ended up, I was very involved in markets and the regulatory policy issues, and I was tapped by Chairman Jay Clayton to go to the Securities and Exchange Commission, where I ran the Division of Trading and Markets for three and a half years, 
When I went there, I thought we were going to be dealing with equities issues, fixed income issues, and a lot of other issues. I had no idea how much time we were going to be spending dealing with digital assets and Bitcoin ETFs and the like. So while there, I, don't blame me for some of what didn't happen while I was there, but there was a lot of things that we tried to make happen, and there were some things that we made happen successfully. Anyway, after doing that for three and a half years, I went to Coinbase for four months. I was running their capital markets division. We were trying to figure out how to build out digital asset securities. Um, that was very short because they pivoted more towards sort of NFTs and DeFi. And then after that, I ended up running an advisory practice uh, now where I'm helping firms try to figure out how to tokenize real world assets and bring them onto the blockchain. So I'm uh, pleased to be able to work with Carlos and, and team. I'm also very excited about this Winston product. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm Liz von Habsburg, Managing Director of Winston Art Group. I come to this from a very different aspect. I'm, I'm, an, I'm in the art world, but I've always been a huge proponent of tech and how tech can help the art world come into the 21st century. It's still stuck in the 20th century somewhere. Uh, when I started thinking about how can we make the art world more sophisticated, I knew Nana Decking, who is founder of Artery for years, and thought, how can we take that blockchain um, aspect that they're using merge it with the art market and make it into something that really makes sense for investors. That's my side. And, and by the way, for JP Morgan, the only um, tie I have to them is that they're my bank. <laughs> Chase. And Carlos. Well, so um, my history is I have nothing to do with financial services. I never worked for a bank, and hopefully I never do. And um, but I have a tech background. And I just stumbled upon something called blockchain in 2016 when the public Ethereum blockchain launched. And at that time, people were doing the, the so-called ICOs and basically issuing these tokens, which looked to me like a proxy for equity in the company. And they were very successfully selling into you know, individual investors and then providing liquidity after that. And I thought, like, wow, well, this is great, right? Like, this is a, you know, equity in startups or other asset classes are extremely inaccessible and illiquid. So this technology facilitates that. So I had an idea of... Let's tokenize a VC fund because venture capital as an asset class has those characteristics. It's very inaccessible and it's extremely liquid because you basically invest on a blind pool that takes like 10 years to get any money back. And what I didn't know is that what those ICOs were illegal. And it turns out that if you want to do it in a legal way, it's a lot more complicated than what I expected. And you know, five years after, I'm still here trying to figure out how to do it. But hope, hopefully, we've made some progress on the way and started securitized with uh, my partner, Jamie, who is somewhere here in the audience. And, um, and yeah, I've been in this journey for five years, basically been building a company that can actually leverage the, you know, the power of blockchain in a regulated way, you know, acquiring all the licenses and without doing anything illegal, which these days we've, we've seen a lot happening in the industry. I think what I really love about this panel is we have so many different perspectives. We have private equity, we have the regulatory experience, fine art and platform infrastructure. So. Let's kind of level set for the room. Um, maybe we can define some of the terminology, especially for folks who might not be as technical. Can you help us understand what you are doing and define what you're doing versus you know, the broader crypto community? Talking about you know, what is tokenization? What is the blockchain in your view? So look, if you think about blockchain, blockchain is basically kind of like the next evolution of the internet as a public utility that has one thing that internet didn't have, which is a very simple way to represent and transact with things that represent value. That's the, the so-called tokens that people you know, issue on the blockchain and that are very simple to prove that you actually own them, transferring to other people, and then you have smart contracts that help you with rules around how you do that, etc. I think the main difference of what we do versus what the rest of the crypto industry does is that 
everything, every token we show on the, on the blockchain represents a real world asset. And in that case, it's actually a security and is regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission um, and is legal. And, um, and it actually has an actual underlying value as opposed to a lot of these other stuff that happened on the unregulated side of crypto that we've seen the consequences these days of people using, you know, issuing these tokens that, you know, as I usually call them, they're imaginary internet money that don't actually represent any value, right? So, so we definitely believe in the, on the technology. We think that, um, you know, the, the unregulated part is, most of it is going to go away or is going to be regulated and that what we do is going to be kind of what stays in the industry. Anyone want to add to it? I would just say, and, and Blythe and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, that when people use the term crypto, and people will still come up to me and they're like, oh, you're, you're doing crypto now. And I'll say, well, you know, it's interesting because in crypto you have one side, which is, you know, everything from, you know, obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum, but there's also Dogecoin and Shiba Inu and so on. And this is sort of the area where people are like, what is exactly the regulatory structure? And they're waiting for clarity on that. And then you have this other side, which is if you start with traditional financial products and securities and you say, how can we start with registered products and then bring them onto the blockchain and benefit from that technology? It's a very different kind of path into the space. And so I would sort of define at least a lot of my focus and, and my work with, with these folks is sort of coming from that end, like starting with traditional financial products and, and then saying, how can we leverage this technology and make it work better for investors and for the markets? Let's talk about use cases. Um, how do you go about identifying use cases? What is the process? How do you innovate in the space? Because I know on, on this panel, we also have uh, Liz um, as it relates to art. And I know you all are launching a tokenized launch, art launch. fund. I think we should talk about that. Let's explore the use cases. So clearly, um, there are many barriers to entry for investors who want to get into the art market. One of them is a lack of credible data. Uh, there are other ones I'll talk about later on, but lack of credible data means that how, how do you know that one particular artwork is what it's supposed to be? So when we decided to launch this art fund, Nana and I were talking about how do we make sure that people are going to be comfortable with the information that we provide. So when we're looking for a, a work of art, we do a, a protocol that includes over 50 factors of due diligence. That due diligence is then translated into a due diligence certificate, which Artery then places on blockchain. That due diligence certificate then talks to Securitize's token. Uh, and then the other barrier to entry is lack of liquidity. Those tokens then can be easily um, sold and transferred, making this asset now liquid when it wasn't before. The space broadly defined as blockchain, crypto, and the world that has grown up around it has in, in many ways uh, disappointed a lot of people, and um, including myself. Uh, and I think my, my perspective on this is that if you confuse a, a technology with a political or a philosophical uh, or an emotional point of view, um, you end up with some uh, often you know, un unintended consequences. And I think that the, the roots of the, the genesis of uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and the notion of decentralized uh, activity, including financial activity, was ideologically driven in many ways by 
a perception, an opinion, that centralized actors, whether they be banks, financial intermediaries, central banks, have largely failed the world in many ways. They've left large segments of the population left behind. They haven't done a great job of manage, managing the money supply. They've, they've, they've betrayed our trust. And so, fantastic, let's, let's have an innovation that through de decentralization, secure, cryptographically secure technology enables independent parties to em embark into a trustless world with confidence. And the promise of that seems so uh, enormous and unstoppable. Unfortunately, what, what it also offered was a way to navigate around the burdensome, protracted, expensive regulatory frameworks that bedevil the traditional financial world, but which have grown up for a reason, several reasons, but all, most of which have to do with protecting either the individual or the system at large, or both. And so a lot of the activity in this space, when you invent something that is designed to circumvent the role of regulation, the rule of law, adult supervision, however you want to uh, describe it, unfortunately it attracts certain types. And it turns out that the world of crypto is just as prone to actors uh, that act badly as the world of traditional finance and the world of commerce and, and the world. And, and I think that's, you know, it's fundamentally disappointing. Um, and it forces you, I think, if you, want to, if you want to look at this space and assess its potential for the future, forces you to go back to first principles and say, what is the problem that is solved by this fascinating new set, set of technologies, it's not just one technology, that, 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 uh, that we're talking about here. And the problem fundamentally that is solved is the ability to improve on the original version of the internet, digital commerce, via vastly enhanced security features, basically. It's about being able to have multiple independent parties agree on the state of affairs around something of value and transact with confidence. And that's where we need to go back to. So the use cases, to answer your question, uh, that I think will prevail and that will emerge as successful out of the ashes of the mess that we see around us, will be uses that take advantage of the unique features of the technology to achieve that. And you've already talked about the ability to democratize access to asset classes, where be it art, be it venture capital, be it private equity, that have traditionally been the domain of the institutional investor, uh, the ultra-wealthy. We've talked about the um, benefits of fractionalization. You don't have to use a blockchain to fractionalize an asset, but there are some attributes to the ease of transfer, the proof of ownership, and so on, that, that, are, that are really attractive here. And we need to look for, and I think the money will flow into, businesses that are uh, deploying this technology specifically because it's the best way to solve a problem that needs solving, as opposed to the technology comes first, it's a worldview, it's a philosophical view, it's a religious, it's a religious ideological you know, position, and then let's find something to do with it. And it turns out what we did with it was speculate and trade like crazy. 
and, and substitute for the lack of real rates of return elsewhere in, in, in the world due to, to, other, to other things. So when I look at what Securitize uh, is doing, whether it be with private equity or with art or with other real world assets, in, in the world of banking, RWA means something else. Um, that means risk-weighted assets. I've had, to, I've had to upgrade my vernacular to understand that it means real-world assets now. But looking for a good, a good use case, you've got to find the situation where there is some way in which the outcome touches the real world beneficially. And democratizing access to asset classes that offer attractive risk return profile is an excellent example of that and improving the way in which we can lower the costs, streamline the uh, transfer, and improve the efficiency of that is an excellent example of that. So that's where I think this, uh, this world is going and where the space is going. And I think um, there's still a there there. Um, it's very unfortunate that, that the last few months have shown us that bad actors are attracted to places where there's not much adult supervision. This is not, this is not a new lesson. I just want to add something there. So if you think about why internet is, is so impactful to, to our daily lives, it's basically because internet enabled for the creation of long tail of markets that didn't exist before. So before internet was created, you know, if Sergio owns this, uh, this place, there was no good way for him to advertise to a specific audience, right? Because there was no way to do it efficiently, right? You have to play it on on TV, which costs a lot of money and will reach a ton of people you don't want to reach or on a newspaper and things like that. And vice versa, if you're looking for, you know, what is a paddle place in Miami, there was no simple way to, like, you as an individual figure out what, oh, God, that's a paddle place, I want to go there, and it's just, like, two blocks away. And the internet, as a, if you want two-sided marketplace, basically enable the long tail of things like advertising, right? Then you can suddenly now advertise very efficiently to your target audience and vice versa, people can actually find your product. And these two-sided marketplaces became extremely efficient and as opposed to what everybody believed at the beginning of internet that industries were going to be destroyed they actually go amplified right like advertising is a much bigger business today than it was before the actors might be different but the industry itself has flourished because of this new you know uh public utility if you want right and the same you can apply to like you know food delivery and ride hailing and you know content distribution and communications and many many industries right but the one industry that has not been you know largely touched by the internet is capital markets and capital markets is like advertising was before the internet. It's an extremely inefficient industry. Only the large players have access to the other large players on the other side. And as a two-sided marketplace, it's extremely inefficient. I cannot access certain products. Those guys cannot sell it to me. If I'm a small business, it's not easy for me to raise money. If I'm a large company, it's not easy for me to serve a small uh, investor. And if you think of you know, blockchain as kind of like this next version of this public utility that transacts efficiently with things that represent value, what we're going to have seen happening is the creation of the long tail of capital markets, and capital markets will be bigger and more efficient and more, you know, democratized and inclusive. And that's what I believe when I started the company. And unfortunately, as Blythe said, you know, a lot of the people like me that are starting in 2016 with this belief of this is better rails for uh, finance ended up becoming 90% speculation with, you know, uh, imaginary internet money. And that's a very unfortunate thing. And hopefully all this fraud and all these things happening these days will flush out all these bad actors from the industry and people will go back to the roots of how the industry was created, which is how can we create a better financial system that is more inclusive and is more democratized and is more accessible. And to that point, more, more inclusive, more democratized. 
who who is this for? Like the tokenized private equity funds, the tokenized art front. Is this like does this have to do with the rise of the individual retail investor who historically might not have been able to access these asset classes? Liz, do you want to take it or? I can take that. So look, if you if you're you know a pension fund or a Howard endowment or something like that, you have a, a an asset distribution that you're gonna have something on public equities, you're gonna have something on you know bonds, and you're gonna have a portion of it in alternative assets, right? You can invest in private equity and venture capital, etc. But and that maybe will be like 10, 20, 30 percent of your uh, of your allocation, right? Or art or other you know alternative assets. To, if you're an individual investor, your allocation to these alternative assets is nearly zero, right? And maybe crypto is actually the only one that is accessible today. But the rest is not accessible. There is no place where I can go on the same way that I go to Robinhood and buy Apple shares, that I can go and buy a share on a fine art fund or on a KKR fund or an emotive partners fund or an Apollo or whatever. That doesn't exist, right? And of course, technology is only part of the problem or part of the solution. These other aspects, which is regulatory, like from a regulatory perspective, how do you make it legal and how do you democratize the, the vehicles, et cetera, which is you know, 50% of, uh, of, the, of the issue. But the other 50% the technology solves for it and it basically allows people to manage their financials better. And in, like I always say, invest like the best, right? Like if the best have that allocation, it's for a reason, right? So why you as an individual investor can have that same allocation? I'll just add that if you go to a typical wealth manager and you say, well, you know, I understand that the upside of private equity or private markets or Reg D securities or whatever that is much bigger than after a company goes public, right? So if you track where the upside is, a lot of times that's where it is. And I know that my wealth managers say, well, we have two products. You can buy the, you know, this product and that product, and that was it. It was very, very limited. And when you think about what's happening here now is you have a lot of these products that are getting made available in a form that's going to be accessible to a lot of different people that they can buy in tokenized form and that they can own and do unique things with. So I really think this does open up that sort of fractionalization and democratization. And part of it is because it brings the break-even point down for funds, right? Typically, they'll look and they'll say, well, you know, to have another investor, it's going to cost me X to make that worth my while. And so my limit has to be $1 million or maybe even $5 million. And now you're seeing a world where it's sort of like, well, maybe we can offer it at $100,000 or $50,000 or something like that. So it really opens that world up to people who don't, you know, have an extra $5 million bucks to go throw into an investment. See how he started the pitch. He said, my wealth manager. Well, like 99% of people don't have a wealth manager to start with, right? So, so this is, you know, it's even a bigger problem than what he described that has access to those That's things. But problem. most of the people don't even actually have access to, to, to these, you know, wealth management platforms where you can actually get some of these products, right? So, so the problem is a lot bigger than, than what people uh, think. But we're going to start fixing Brett's problem first. <laughs> I want to go back to you know the current environment. Um, we we all we all know what we're talking. The SBF, SBF FTX fiasco. Um, it's, you know maybe putting a damper on the space generally. I want to hear from you, Brett. What do you think are more of the regulatory implications? Wow, that, that's <laughs> there. There's a you know there's 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 a ten billion dollar question. Um, no, so first thing, I, I want to sort of echo what Blaise said earlier because, you know, when this started, okay, so I was in the SEC. I started in October 2017. It was right on the tail end of the sort of ICO boom, right? So we were seeing all sorts of things coming in, and it was sort of like, I can tell you this, inside of the commission, they were like, 
well, these guys are trying to like bring securities to market, but they don't want to deal with any of the rules or the regulation. And so it was looked at as just like a big arbitrage. Like, you know, it's obviously it's going to be cheaper or have benefits if you don't have to pay or go through all the headaches that it takes to deal with a lot of the regulatory process. And so the ICO thing kind of flushed out. And now you've seen a couple other subsequent waves of all that. And with this one, so sp to speak directly about this, um, look, we have all been looking for some sort of policy response. We want the SEC to provide clarity. We want some rules. We want to know kind of which way to go. Um, the Hill has been working on a number of different bills. There's four big bills that they've been sort of kicking around. And so now the question is, okay, so we had this big blow up. What, what's happening now? Well, first of all, you have one problem, which is that a, at least one of the big bills, the Stabenow-Bozeman bill, was substantially sponsored. Like there was a lot of money going to some of the sponsors of the bills, and there was also a lot of FTX support behind that. That's not going to help the political process for that those particular pieces of legislation. Secondly, you have you know this sort of SEC versus CFTC dispute, right? So is it the SEC who's going to regulate? CFTC who's going to regulate it? Personally, I think this actually puts some pegs onto the Gary Gensler SEC side because they, the SEC has a much more robust sort of regime around investor protection and the regulation of spot markets. So if you look at the CFTC, they don't have, they don't oversee retail investors and they don't oversee spot markets. And if you look at crypto, it's spot markets and it's retail investors, right? And so you have this other dynamic happening. So I think this actually moves the ball a little bit into, you know, sort of the SEC's court a little bit. And the third thing is we all want, like, everybody says we want reasonable regulation. Now, the, the debate over what is reasonable is, uh, is, you know, there's a lot of devils in the details in terms of how that all shakes out. Unfortunately, when you have an event like this, the pendulum swings. And the pendulum means that the, the legislation or the enforcement action you're going to get are likely going to be more aggressive, right? So I think we will see more aggressive enforcement cases coming. We will see probably an emboldened SEC on some of the things that they're looking at. And we will see political pressure for Congress to do something. Now, we all know we have split government. And so we're all a little bit skeptical whether we're going to see some big bill that's going to, I think we see stablecoin legislation in 2023. I don't think that we see any big legislation that covers sort of the broad crypto industry. So things will move forward. But I think that we just moved into a direction that is probably going to be a little more challenging for people who are trying to really work in that sort of blockchain space. I was telling Brett something interesting that has happened the last few days. So when the whole FTX fiasco happened and, uh, and all this fraud was uh, unveiled and everything, or at least I think it was fraud, it's my personal opinion, the, the crypto industry reacted very strongly against SBF, like saying he was a bad actor, he was bribing the government, maybe in a legal way, but nevertheless donating for his own uh, political interest. He was pretending that he was a philanthropic person that donating money and he was just like a, a facade to just get the, the, you know, the good side of the media and the, and the traditional media has actually given him a lot of air, right? Like, you know, they had like this big Wall Street Journal article. Then he was in, in the deal room for New York Times yesterday interview by Andrew Sorkin. He was in Good Morning America this morning on ABC. Just unbelievable. And they treat him like, oh, this poor guy just became too big too quickly and he somehow missed $10 billion in the balance sheet by accident. And if you look at the crypto reaction, it's the opposite. This guy's a fraudster that was basically stealing customers' money knowingly for his own benefit. And, and the Today Coindesk actually had a, an editorial article basically saying, no, you know, what, what FTX did is not a mistake, it's fraud. And I, I think that, you know, hopefully the regulators will find fraud there because if that's the case and they really have a strong enforcement action, it's going to incentivize all the people to do the same thing. 
Because if you think about what happens in crypto today, is the following scenario. So crypto is like a highway, right? Where there's a speed limit, which is 60 miles per hour. And like 99% of the people are going at 100 miles per hour. And then if you're, you know, the police on the highway, what do you do? Do you try to stop every single car, which is probably not feasible? Or do you go after like few cars and then try to, you know, make a very exemplary fine of them? So hopefully the other guys will actually stop infringing the, the speed limit. Or as the crypto people say, oh, well, if everybody's going 100 miles, maybe we should let everybody go 100 miles. Which actually, that's not true, right? Because the, the, the speed limit is for a reason, so people don't get killed by driving too fast. So that's exactly where we are today. It's a very tough situation when an entire industry is just basically playing regulatory arbitrage and doing things that are clearly illegal, and there is not enough um, you know, resources from the government side to basically stop everybody. So, One other quick point. I, I think that you will see the DOJ out in front of the regulators like the SEC and the CFTC, obviously they're going to be looking at things, but the, the sort of the, the fraud, wire fraud, or what other, other cases, I think it wouldn't surprise me if they let DOJ go in first. Maybe also getting back to, like you said, first principles, real use cases. Um, Liz, I, I, you and I were talking before this, and we were talking about how you've been looking at the evolution of technology and art for a long time. So I just want to ask and hear from you, what do you see as the evolution in your space going forward? And also maybe we can leave it for the panelists too, for their respective areas, the evolution that they're looking toward or they're most excited about in their respective areas. Let's start with you, Liz. I'm super excited about the use of tech in the art funds because that hasn't been done before the way we're doing it. You know, to really take an asset, which is, as I said before, illiquid uh, and makes a lot of investors nervous because there's not a lot of um, information out there. It's not like trading an equity where you have daily uh, pricing of that strategy. Uh, so I think tech and the use of blockchain technology in the art fund, together with tokenization, which also hasn't been done in the art market, is going to completely change the art market. We're going to get a whole new group of investors, a lot of, um, of institutional investment in the art market, which hasn't happened before. So I'm super excited to see that happen, super excited to be working with Securitize on that. Jump in within anything they're thinking about or prediction or evolution within their respective space? No, I think, look, they, what has happened these days is going to be short term uh, pain, long term gain, right? So, obviously, uh, as Brett said, regulation is going to come faster and stronger than, than before. Short term, I think, is going to scare off a lot of people from, from the industry. I've seen this in early 2018. I saw this six months ago when you know the whole Terra Luna fiasco also happened. So, but long term, they, I I personally believe that the technology is very viable and is very revolutionary and is really useful in trying to solve real-world problems. And my background uh, is technology, not finance. And as I got into the, the world of finance, I was actually personally shocked about how inefficient it is. And then when you start seeing those inefficiencies, you start asking yourself, like, why nobody has fixed them? Or like, why there is no like full digitization like you see in other industries that enables a lot of you know, better serving your, your target customers? So I definitely think that that's going to happen. You know, as usual, this is, is going to kind of slow down before we accelerate again. Yeah, I mean, most people would probably bet against the fact that we would have autonomous vehicles on the road before we had T plus zero settlement in equities. But we got the cars before before the efficient settlement. There, there's so many ways in which um, the process of of transacting uh, and agreeing and post-trade processing of uh, investments is 
uh, an anachronism. It's a, it's, it still involves a huge number of um, heads and paper and even faxes and emails and all sorts of inefficient forms of, of mechanisms for simply agreeing on the state of who owns what, who has what rights with respect to what. That, that's a, that is an enormous prize uh, for blockchain technology at the enterprise level that, that is, still, is still out there to be delivered on. Uh, and what that takes is uh, network effect and enough concerted actors whose interests are aligned to want to effectuate the change to tackle the problem of the legacy assets. And the, the problem that our, this industry faces today is that you have two parallel universes. You have the traditional financial world, trillions and trillions, actually the DTCC, the biggest uh, market infrastructure in the world, processes, I think it's 1.5 quadrillion notional in dollars of transactions a year. That's, a quadrillion has 15 zeros. I had to look that up. Um, some point the zeros become meaningless. It's, it's, it's extraordinary, but the the the, the reality is, is that the, the, the world of traditional finance is enormous. It's performant. It doesn't break that often. It is inefficient. It's very costly and more costly in a higher interest rate environment, by the way, uh, than a low interest rate environment. And then we have these challenger technologies which have existed off to the side and have gotten themselves carried away with use cases that have involved speculation, rampant trading, blatant regulatory arbitrage, and now fraud and, fraud and theft and, and, and so on. And these two things don't touch. They're two separate universes. And, and so the, the, the challenge for the industry, both for the incumbents, the legacy, and the newcomers, the upstarts, is going to be bridging that gap. Um, and bridging that gap is hard, and it's what Companies like Securitize and very few others are actually succeeding in, you know, beginning to do, which is take the best parts of the technology and apply it to the worst parts of the old, the old way that the, work, the world works and achieve a benefit for users that are, are identifiable and that have a, have a demand for that. Um, and that's the, op that's the opportunity. It's not just about blockchain. It's, it's also about digitization broadly defined. If you look at the private equity, or let's call it the alternatives industry uh, as a manufacturing process, um, it's, it's incredibly analog um, relative even to insurance and healthcare, which aren't exactly bastions of modernity either uh, in, in, in their own ways. But it's, it's, very, it's very, very analog. Why? Because it's worked that way for a long time. It function, it's highly functional. It is performant. And, the, and it matters. The, that, the way that our system is designed it has evolved because there's enormous amount of value trapped in that system that has to be safeguarded. And if you don't have respect for that, it turns out you'll never be able to revolutionize that. And, and all of this talk about, you know, Bitcoin will displace the U.S. dollar and crypto will, dis you know, well, banks will be gone is, is, is born of a fundamental lack of respect for the understanding of the way that the world works today and why it works the way it works and what you lose when you break things. It's not good to break everything. You, you can't just break everything. You get what we got. You know, that was a great example of the Wild West, uh, completely un uncurtailed activity. Um, 
fraud, theft, misrepresentation, hiding in plain sight, the basic levels of, of prudential uh, and uh, market regulation uh, would have would have uncovered that in a nanosecond. Basic levels of due diligence by sophisticated financial investors and basic norms of governance that are normally applied by financial market in investors. These are things that the old world has been dealing with for centuries and yet were not applied here for reasons that we will all just look back on and scratch our heads. So that's, that's the mess that we have to work our way back out of. I, I always explain the same anecdote. So last year in, in summer, we, we got an investment from, uh, from Morgan Stanley, which is a very big uh, investment bank. And then one of the things that resonated with the with the, the asset manager that did the, the investment in the company is that in the past they had invested in a company that went public, right? So it got listed in Nasdaq or whatever. And then one day he was at the office looking at the Bloomberg terminal and he saw that the company had paid a dividend. And they were like, oh, we have not received our dividend. So he calls up the company and says, like, where's my dividend? And he's like, I don't know, I gave it to a transfer agent. So transfer agent is this you know, arcane entity, which we have a license for, <laughs> that deals with these things like paying a dividend. And you will think that if you have to pay a dividend, you know to whom you need to pay. But actually in real, you know, capital markets, companies don't know who the shareholders are. Something as basic as knowing who your owners are, they actually don't know it. So they use these intermediaries to then try to figure out who the shareholders are and do things like paying a dividend, right? So anyway, they call up the transfer agent. And they say, oh, guys, you haven't paid the dividend. I say, like, yeah, we sent a check to Morgan Stanley. It's like, which Morgan Stanley? It's like, we have like 32,000 employees. It's like, oh, this is office. So they had sent a random check to a random person at a huge investment bank to pay a multi-million dollar dividend that ended up somewhere. They took them weeks to recoup it. They transferred you would not reissue the check because the check was there. Somebody could actually cash it out. And these things that, you know, blow my mind, right? Because this doesn't happen in other, other industries are digitized, right? Like, you can, you can open your phone and get a... a you know, food delivery or get a taxi, and you can actually get it pay a dividend in an efficient way instantly into your bank account. So these are the kind of like basic fundamental problems that are the lack of digitization of a lot of the parts of capital markets could be addressed with this technology. I was just going to throw out, Lauren, I hate to do this, but one like potential prediction here, which is that I would say don't underestimate what can be done within the scope of the existing regulatory framework with respect to blockchain. And if you think about it, all the stuff that Securitize is doing is happening within the existing regulatory framework. And there's some no action or exceptions that have been negotiated. You know, we, we worked on some of those when I was at the SEC as well. But it can happen. And quite frankly, I'm skeptical we're going to get a big crypto bill. Like we might get a stable coin bill, but quite frankly, we have a divided Congress. They don't want, I don't think they want Biden in this administration to have a big bill that passes because that's just going to help him get reelected. So that politics is going to get in the way, I think, of potentially a big bill coming to the fore. But in the meantime, the existing regulatory framework, I think that there's a chance that either through an enforcement action or you may have either an exchange or a broker dealer or, or multiple who go to the SEC and voluntarily register. So we don't, otherwise you're waiting for, I don't know, two years before there's any real clarity from Congress. And so people who want to do this are saying, well, maybe I can work with the SEC and figure out a, a crypto broker registration or a crypto exchange regulation. And these sorts of things, if they can happen, if people can kind of sort of suck it up and realize that you got to work with this whole panoply of roles and negotiate those things that have to change to make it work for blockchain, I think it's probably possible, and that's where the heavy lifting could be done that could get us to a potentially a better place for a, a digital asset ecosystem. I just want to say thank you, Carlos, Liz, Brett, and Blythe for an enlightening discussion, really 
appreciate you all sharing your time and your ideas. Thank you so much.